0: Okay. Hi, guys. I just walked in, and they said they needed a moderator, so step away from the microphone. So this is what being in um, in program is about, is being of service. So I asked them if I could maybe just, like, you know, clean the toilets or something, and they gave me a much nicer job here. Okay. So the name of this workshop is? What is the name of this workshop? This is the Gift of Desperation workshop meeting. My name is Nancy. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Hi, guys. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please make sure. The session is being taped. All participants are required to sign the release form. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2, or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. Please remember, OA members affiliated with related facilities or other 12-step programs are requested to speak on their recovery in the OA program only. An ask-it basket will be circulated for the question-and-answer portion of this session. I guess that's this. If there's any press in this room, please respect our anonymity by not taking any pictures, using a video camera, or using our full names. The format for this session is as follows. Three speakers will share for 20 minutes each, followed by questions and answers. An ask it basket will be passed around. Please place your questions in the box for our panelists. And I have a couple of notes that I'm supposed to read. The silent auction and boutique are going on upstairs in the Scalini room. Thanks so much, and please leave leave for the next session. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so the next thing I have to do is the topic for this session is, again, what is the topic? From relapse to recovery. Okay, and our first speaker is, would you like to be our first speaker? Are you your first Okay, go. Thank you so much for your understanding, guys. I
1: think you go here and speak for 20 minutes. Is that right, 20 minutes? Hi, I'm Michelle, compulsive overeater. Hi, Michelle. Thank you. Um, I have some pictures that I will um, try and send around in a little bit. If I can actually hand them to someone. Can I hand them? Thank you. I have to start with I have a huge fear not only about being up here, about these stupid stages. But they have promised me that they are not going to collapse. So, um it is actually one of the reasons that I originally declined doing my high school graduation because I, I hit my top weight um, my junior-senior year, and the stages you walk on are like this, and I just knew for sure that they were going to collapse. And so I um, said I was not going to walk, and then the other thing was is that um, the gowns did not come in my size, so we had to go special order gowns. But I did walk through that fear, and I did walk from my high school graduation. I can also say, by the grace of God, I'm 200 pounds lighter than I was when I walked graduation. And thank you. They did not collapse then, so I'm going to trust that they are not going to collapse now. Um, I've been in program for, it's almost eight years now, I realized the end of August, September, somewhere around there. It'll be eight years. I came in. uh, The reason I came in was because of a broken foot, a fracture in my, I had two fractures in my foot, and I needed to have surgery. And they were unable to do it because they needed to put screws in my foot. And at that weight, they said the screws would smash my bones when I would step. And so, therefore, there was nothing they could do. And so, um, that's what got me into the program. Um, I was a compulsive overeater from the time I can remember. I, as a child, snuck food, ate food whenever I could. I loved being the person who cleaned up after dinner so that I could. Eat as I cleaned up. One of my tricks was if there was ever like gravy or something like that at dinner, or I especially remember Thanksgivings, to be able to put more on my plate but not look like I was going for seconds, I would say that I needed a little more gravy or something. So I'd go in the kitchen to put gravy on but then stack my plate with more food. Um, I, let's see. Once I was able to drive, I also got a job, so that helped with having the extra money. So then I could just buy my own junk food and eat whenever I wanted. I... um, What else? Outside of, once I graduated high school, I thought moving was going to help everything, was going to solve my problems, and so I moved to Oregon and somehow the compulsive eating followed me. And I mo- a friend moved with me, and I, we had Friday as our French, fr- French fry Friday. We'd go to the next town, to McDonald's, and get the big fr- um, French fries. Our other common thing was to go to Costco and get the hot tamales and M&Ms and split them and have a bag last a day or two. And after I realized that living in Oregon didn't change my eating, I moved back to California. And my eating just continued and skyrocketed. I was um, a teacher and I stole from lunch boxes. I ate from trash cans when the kids went out on recess and threw stuff in the trash can. I would lock the door behind them. So they couldn't come back in. I ate um, something that I remembered. I think it was last night. Because of course I was obsessing over what I was going to say today. And something I remembered was I used to buy Hot Pockets. And then as soon as I got in the car, I put one on this in this sleeve thing. And then put it on my dashboard. So that it could start somewhat defrosting. And then I'd kind of like take little bites of it as I was driving um, back to my house. So that it would. Eat, I was eating frozen food, but then also just so I could eat in the car. and um, They were like a little snack. They were not a meal for me. I lived out uh, for a while out on 50 acres, so I was able to extremely isolate myself by living out there. Um, so food was my friend, my best friend during that time. So during all that time, of just eating and, like the literature says, you know, I ate frozen food. I ate from the trash. I ate stale food. I, you know, ate food that wasn't mine. All the stuff that that literature says, our literature says, along with all of that came the emotional, just, um, just terrible emotional stuff. I had the emotional stuff from home and someone put it that they ate to not feel the fear as much at home they ate to not feel the sadness as much as home and at home and that was definitely me i i didn't know how to deal with my emotions so i ate to not have to feel any of the emotions from the household and i was very quiet in school i didn't have friends school was hard anyways being the largest person uh Nobody really talked to me anyways, so it it helped my own isolation, and going through college, I did not talk to really um, many people. I was extremely shy due to my low self-esteem and ego that I was less than everybody, and Yeah, so life was just crappy it was hell <laughs> it just was between the eating and having food on the mind all the time like when I was going to eat next and all that and then just feeling really shitty about myself and you know just isolation and all that and so I think that a couple things brought me into the OA. The, my foot was the physical thing, was that I had tried diets and they all worked, but then they stopped working. They missed, they didn't have that component of the emotional and spiritual recovery to them. And so a friend said to me, Hey, do you want to try OA with me? She had been to OA and so she um, was ready to go back at the time and I said sure I'll go ahead and try it so she invited me I didn't go and then my at the time two year old godson was sit- we were sitting at the park and he said to me he said Shell come run with me come run I said I can't I can't run baby um, and so when my friend asked again if I wanted to go to OA I said okay And I think that time it was my higher power. Um, You know, I wanted to be able to run and chase my godson, and I couldn't with a fractured foot and in such severe pain. I mean, it just hurt so bad at what I weighed walking on that foot. Um, I've been reminded by, you know, my sponsor. I don't remember the beginning so much, a program all the time, but that... I was barely able to walk across the street because my um, home meetings, the parking is across the street from um, the hospital, and that I could barely make it across the street to walk. Um, and gratefully, it's not a problem for me anymore. And so I entered program, and I didn't, I got a sponsor pretty quickly. I think I, it was maybe a month or something. Um month or two. I don't remember. Anyways, I got a sponsor. And she asked if I could meet her after the meeting. And I so I did. And she said, what are you going to eat today? Well, I don't, you know. And so she said, let's make a plan. And so I sat there and made a plan with her for what I was going to eat that day. And that became part of my program is that I made a plan for the day of what I was going to be eating. When I first came into program, I called her every morning and um, worked my steps, and thank you. And by working the steps, I started releasing the weight. I started releasing the physical weight and the emotional weight. I slowly started to talk to people in the meetings a little bit. I'm still a little bit. It was so low challenging for me, but I did talk to people. I made more outreach calls. Um, I started living life. I walked with my head looking at least forward rather than down. i um, didn 't isolate as much. My friends were happy to have me. they said it's nice to not have a doormat anymore um, i I took up cycling, which I had always wanted to do, which gave me such freedom just to ride my bike and, like, just, like, go through the wind, having the wind blow through my face. And the physical recovery did that for me. And um, I think just that emotional piece, especially after my fifth step, was when I just got so much release and life was good. And then I got into a relationship. (laughs) And a relationship I knew I shouldn't be in and a relationship that I only told my sponsor and therapist about there's my clue right there not really a relationship to be in if you're only willing to tell your sponsor and your therapist um, there were multiple reasons why I kept it a secret which you know I was reminded at that time I'm only as sick as my secrets and that is for damn sure, as long as I kept that a secret, I was sick. Um, I made that person my higher power. I was became an emotional wreck um, for multiple reasons. Um, this person was my supervisor, and so at work it was very tense and hard because it had to be... We just, you know... Um, I ha- So this is something I've never said to even people who know me. Well, except for my sponsor. Um, it was with a woman, and I had never been with a woman before. And so as much as I have um, friends that are gay, I still it was hard for me to accept that. And so... It couldn't be known because of it being my supervisor. I didn't want it to be known because it was with a female, um, and she was married. And so, that's just disaster right there. Uh, nothing but disaster. And so, she she had already she was already in the um, process of finding a new place she was leaving her husband. I happened to need a new place also. For reals, like that wasn't actually a lie. Um, I did not need to move into the duplex next to her. It did not need to be where she moved into the duplex I was staying in so that we could save rent. Um, So I had to go through the emotions of her going back to her husband yet being with me and it was hell. It was just hell. And so what I did to get through that, I turned back to food and food helped me. Food got me through it. Um, I went back to my night eating. I went back to sugar. I went back to flour. I went, the new things that I started was not taking suggestions of my sponsor, not working the program. Um, not taking the suggestions of my therapist. <laughs> uh, not talking to my friends about what was going on with me. They lost a friend um, for a year. I I didn't physically leave their life, but I um, emotionally and mentally left their life. And I lost that year with them also. Um, and so, it. Um, I also... Became angry with the program and decided that my sponsor was only judging me. So I felt like I had to leave my sponsor also. So I walked away from my sponsor. And someone said something to me, though. They said, put your ass in the chair once a week. And I thank God I did that. That is the one thing I did through my relapse through hell is I put my my ass in a chair once a week. My Saturday mornings, I still went. I used to go every Friday night so I could spend the night with my godchildren and then go Saturday morning. And half the time I gave that up. I gave up my Friday nights with them. Um, and I got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. My emotions, I would say, yes, because I put on weight also. That part was really hard for me. The obsession the, of the food back in my head all the time. Um, having to go buy bigger clothes again. All that was hard, but the emotional piece was the hardest. I had gone back to hell. I can remember one night it was raining, and the only way I could bring myself centered back was I had to go sit in the rain. I went and sat in the rain and prayed to God to help me. And I, I totally contributed to keeping my ass in the chair once a week, and the people that loved me didn't give up on me, even though I left my my sponsor. She still loved me and cared about me. She, you know, um, I did go. I did find another sponsor, and um, did a little of working the steps, not a whole lot. Um, and so I think it is like it says, the gift of desperation. I was desperate to have back what I had finally been given. I had finally been given some freedom of my emotions. I had finally been given some freedom with my physical body. And I wanted that back. I didn't... I finally realized or something, God hit me hard enough upside the head and said, you don't need to be in hell anymore. You just don't need to be in hell. And so... I... Thank you. I... Started working the program again. I started doing my steps again. I started picking up my meetings again and going to my three meetings a week. I started doing my prayer meditation in the morning again. And, you know, slowly it just came back. I got a good abstinence again. And once I was abstinent, I could see a little bit clearer. Realized I had to break all ties from that friendship because this person was a friend prior to, and we couldn't go back to being friends, which um, we had tried. It just was a, yeah. So um, I had to, you know, leave that, and I had to be honest with my friends and once I was honest with my friends, it just lifted a huge weight off my chest and and they were like, "Why didn't you just talk to us? We love you and it's not it hasn 't put any anything on the friendship since then we're closer than we could ever be. Um, and I have gained that life back i I have two godchildren now and um, I can chase them. I went swimming with them this past week. One of our biggest things is we wrestle, and I'm physically able to. I and mean, My 10-year-old, I told him now, though, I don't get to be on my knees. I have to stand because that kid can take me down. And I am grateful. I mean, the joy that we have, its it's our Friday night routine. I mean, he looks forward to it. Maybe not as much as I do. I don't know. Thank you. Um, and, and I ride my bike again. When I um, stay in Sacramento, I ride it as much as I can to the meetings or to wherever I'm going. So I have that gift back also. My emotions don't weigh as heavy on me anymore. I'm willing to share them most of the time. Not always. Um, and I'm working the steps. I do my 10th step every night, which, which helps me. I, I've been abstinent for three and a half years now. And um, I'm just grateful for those days. I don't want that obsession back. And I have that life back, which I want to keep. Well, thank you.
0: Um, Brian, you want to go? In? Our second speaker will be Brian. Thank
2: you. Hi, I'm Brian, a compulsive overeater. Hi, Brian. I'm just going to hand this out real quick. It's just a few photos. I don't have a whole lot of photos, but, anyways, I know a lot of us don't have a lot of photos. Um. Anyways, I'm going to start off with a little bit of... No, actually, I want to start off with is I'm so excited to be here, and I'm so happy to see everybody. This program means everything to me, and I was thinking when I came in here, it's like being with your family, even though I was a little nervous because I'm speaking, but then I realized, no, being with my regular family makes me real nervous. <laughs> being with this family actually settles me down most of the time. Um, I uh, grew up... In San Francisco, actually, I came from a family that was uh, pretty much all alcoholics. And then I had one sibling who was a compulsive overeater, and then I was alcoholic and compulsive overeater. And that was everybody in our family uh, father, mother, three older brothers. Pretty much everybody got into AA eventually. Um, I didn't go to AA, but um, OA is the program I came to that changed everything. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of my history because there's just not enough time. (laughs) I'm too old. But anyways, um, I came to my first meeting. I didn't seek a way out. It was a little bit of a, I guess, I don't know, maybe an odd way to come in. But I basically lived in total denial. I mean total denial. I, I was big, and I had no idea there was a disease of overeating. I didn't really think about it. I was focused on only trying to be successful and somehow trying to fit into the world. And my ex-wife had been seeing a therapist, and apparently he found OA. And he said to her, is your husband still fat? And she said, yes. And he said, I want to see him one time. So I came in to see him, and he 12-stepped me with like a 2 by 4 He just flat out said, you're a compulsive overeater. You need to be an OA here's a schedule, go, and I didn't even know this guy. I'd never met him. I mean, he was born again OA. And, <laughs> and as odd as all that was, there was one thing he said that, that really changed me. Well, there kind of two things. One, he said, you have to go, and I was a 100% people pleaser, so I knew I had to go. <laughs> I mean, there was no choice. But number two, he said, if you are a compulsive reader, you'll leave here and probably eat. And at that time, I was taking a class at the junior college in Santa Rosa, where I lived. And I drove down the street on the way to class, and I went through a fast food restaurant and got some food. And then I went into another fast food restaurant. That I walked inside. They kind of served stuff quick. And they weren't fast enough, so I got mad and I left. And I drove to another fast food restaurant. And I was sitting in the parking lot of the junior college eating, and I thought to myself, he is so wrong. (laughs) Is literally what I thought. So, anyways, I did go to my first meeting, and it was very strange. It was a psychotherapy office, and I was in my business suit, and everybody sat on the floor, and it was so weird. And they passed that thing you sign around, and you put your phone number in, and I was going to have no part of that for sure. I didn't know what that was about. But that was my first spiritual experience. I had never sought out a program. I didn't really know anything about programs, but when I left that meeting I felt like I I could physically feel that I had been carrying the weight of the world and I now knew it and it was kind of not necessarily entirely set on the side but I felt somehow completely different and I got abstinent immediately and I mean I got this program and trust me I knew how it worked for me and for you (laughs) like really well um And if you weren't getting it, you know, I really did know better, and I judged you. And then I learned some of the great life experiences, which is true to this day. Is pretty much anything I've ever judged, I get to experience. So all the people that were relapsing, I got to really get a long-term experience of what that was like. And I really learned about it. My first meeting was November 1st, 1984, and my current abstinence uh, is like around five years something. I, I don't even really know. I was talking to my wife on the way down. Is it five years? Is it this year's? Because I, honest to God, I could care less. I literally could care less. I used to care a whole lot about what my date was, how many days it was. I am beginning to get that it's today. But in general, that's it. I've lost maybe around 90 pounds. I don't know for sure. I haven't weighed myself in a while. But anyways, judgment, I got to experience that. And the example I try to keep in my head now is I really want to avoid judging. If a member of our program walked in that door wearing a Superman cape and all these other things, I would just be like a right on because I don't want to come next year to the convention wearing a Superman cape. (laughs) And having experienced it. so. (laughs) Anyways. uh, So after I was abstinent for, I don't know, a few years, then I got into relapse. And it would be like many of us in this room have probably experienced. You know, you get some abstinence, then you lose it. And then you get some, and you lose it. And it's frustrating. And it's hard. And you see the people that get it, and I don't know how to get it. And I'm trying, but maybe I'm not really trying. And I'm feeling bad about myself. And I went through that for a long time. If you figure when I came in of 84 and a few years of abstinence, and I can't do the math in my head, and if I've had five and a half years now, that's a big chunk of life. And it wasn't all horrible. You know, there was periods of abstinence in there. But it wasn't like it is now. You know, now I I have freedom, without a doubt. And the way I got to the freedom, I just wanted to talk about The kind of the process of how that happened Um, I wanted to read something in uh, the Lifeline Sampler I have learned to I really never enjoyed literature before and I am a literature person now and I used to read I read program stuff every morning and I read it every night when I go to bed but in the Lifeline Sampler which is anyways you can't tell by looking at this but that's the book it's OA stories from the lifeline compiled into a book there's a story about what I thought was a good capsule on relapse about how it feels and how how I want to think of others and this person said if I'm working my program I need to show you love whether you are eating or not that is what is meant by acceptance if being thin, happy, joyous and free is not enough Incentive to abstain, I don't believe my saying, I love and accept you just the way you are, is enough incentive to make you binge. Only through acceptance do people change. And this story in context, there was someone telling her, you don't want to give people permission to binge. You, know, you don't necessarily want to tell them, hey, you're okay. And I believe we are okay. I really do. Um, this is just not a simple program, and I don't know why. Or it is a simple program, but it's just not easy. We experience a lot of relapse in this program. Has been my experience over the years of seeing people. You know, so it can't, in my mind, be a judgment of who we are. When I came to my bottom, it it was a lot of things happening at the same time. I was in a business field that was tied to real estate, so when the crash came in whatever years those were. It was like a slow water torture of financial ruin just when you think you might be able to survive and it just kept going and going and going and going. And then a marriage I was in that was about 27 years ended at the same time. And then my mother passed away, who I had a lot of issues with, but the death of a parent is always significant. And then my father passed away. And all this happened in a period of maybe about a year. And I got into a depression that was really significant. You know, I remember after I started to come out of it, the psychiatrist who was prescribing me some medication said, you know, if this was 20 years ago before all the cutbacks, you probably would have been hospitalized. And I think about that, where I was then. I could hardly work. If I could put in three, four, five hours of work in a week, that was pretty good. This last week, I'm self-employed. I'm not a workaholic. Don't get me wrong at all. I would rather not work, but I worked like 70 hours this week because just when my business comes in in clumps, I need to do what I can do to get it, you know. So I think about going from a few hours a week to what the recovery in this program has allowed me and given me. It's just miraculous and and amazing. And I think the miracle that allowed me to recover and get out of relapse is I kept The structure of the program around me, even though I felt like it would never work. I have seen people leave this program, and they don't get better. You know, you run into them outside. And you know how we all are. You know, you run into someone at the grocery store, and you hope they don't see what's in your cart. And, you know, we're getting bigger, and we hope we don't look too big. And, you know, on and on and on. And by some grace of God, of which I think I know part of what that grace of God was, which was friends, I was able to stay in the context of the program and have not left. My bottom occurred, I, had a, I would still go to at least one meeting a week, and I had a group of friends, very close friends. We would meet once a week and read the big book, a group of anywhere from four to eight of us. And we would read and discuss for an hour. One person reads a page, and then we all share. When we're done sharing, we read another page. And while we were reading the big book, I'm reading these stories about alcoholics that have lost everything. Their life is just destroyed. And everybody in that room was abstinent, and probably most of them long-term abstinence except me. And I'm reading these stories thinking, this is me. I mean, this is me. And these friends loved me no matter what. They didn't say, Brian, you're not worthwhile as a human being. If they had said that, I can't imagine what would have happened. I can't even imagine what would have happened. And I'm so eternally grateful to those people. And by having stayed in the context of the program, I was sitting on a couch in my good friend's living room, and I realized suddenly I want to do whatever it takes. Um, I don't know how that occurs, and I don't know how the change occurs. I can only tell you what I did and how it worked for me. And I literally thought, I don't care if I have to go to a meeting every day and do this and do that. I'm just going to do it. So I started with just going to more meetings. And then I started adding a little more structure in my day of program. I would read some program literature every morning. And then in the evenings, I read two pages of the big book every night. And I had a journal that I would write down what I ate. And then I'd write just a little bit of journaling. And I mean some days a sentence, some days a page. And I email my food into my sponsor. And when I first started emailing my food to my sponsor, I wasn't really emailing my food. I was just telling them I ate this, this, and this. No idea. wouldn't tell them how much. A lot of shame. My first abstinence in this current one that changed was getting rid of sugar. And I've known I can't eat sugar. There's no secret about that in my life. All my childhood memories from my younger ages are limited except of eating sugar and wanting more sugar. When I was in the midst of my relapse, I remember once I lived on the west side of town. The meeting was on the east side. I drove, stopped at Safeway, went into one of the bins, shoveled some M&Ms in a bag, ate them on the way to the meeting. My old sponsor used to say, by the way, that the bins are looking for love in all the wrong places. But um, after I left that meeting on the way home, I looked and I found the receipt, and I'd eaten you know, around four pounds of M&Ms on the way to a meeting. And that's the kind of sugar eating I do. It's nonstop. When I was at the end of that binge, before I became abstinent, I wasn't trying to hide it from anybody. I didn't care. It was just like maintenance, like an alcoholic drinking a fifth a day. You just had to get it. I don't care who knew. I'd just given up caring. I also realized that there's no bottom, that I really saw the bottomless bottom, you know, and that was frightening. Always had the illusion I'd stop at 300, 350, or whatever. Um, So anyways, in this abstinence, the first thing that happened was I wrote in my journal, you know, I need to not eat sugar, I'm committing to that. And then God, who I don't understand, and I still don't understand as I understand him, um, I need your help and please make it happen. And it did, I got abstinent that way. And then I realized at some point, maybe eating all the food on the planet, except sugar, might not be the best (laughs) abstinence also. So I wrote in my journal one day, God... I'm going to limit myself to this amount of calories every day. I've, I've made a decision. Please make it happen. And it happened. But by keeping that structure, I really want to talk about structure because I'm the most unstructured person, and this has changed my life. At night, I write in my journal, this is what I ate, and it would be, I opened up some snack food that says on the package 12 servings, and it's one serving. Like, it is one serving. There's, I don't know how anybody would make it 12 so I'd write my calories out and it's like I had this, this and all of these and it's like wow and then my calories ended at midnight so I'd want to eat after midnight so that it eats into the next day right so I got to carry them over so then the next day I can't eat as much as I want and blah 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 so then one day I wrote down God I can't eat Ritz Bits. can you please remove that and then a couple of months later, God, I can't eat X. You know, I make a decision, but I can't implement it. God, I can't eat Y. And then pretty much what I've given up, I, I, someone's described it as anything that makes crackling noises when you open it. Anything, <laughs> like literally. And for a visual, just walk into Walmart and look at everything as you walk in. And it's all of that, like literally all of that. Um. one of the major things that helped me make all these changes is also when I was reading my big book which I followed the big book only because it was the only book when I started and it's what my first sponsor led me through and I read page 86 and I realized that I needed to get a little more structure in my life and this is what I would read every night is when we retire at night we constructively review our day where were we and these are the things that will encapsulate my whole life. Resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid. And that, by the way, right there, is my lifetime of work. There is nothing else that I probably will ever have to need to look into, but I will if I feel it. But, and every night when I wrote in my journal, I would answer, where was I these things? Selfish. The next night, selfish. The next night, selfish. I go to a party I want to know what I can get out of it rather than can I help someone do something, you know, on and on and on. And that began to allow me to change my life again by seeing the structure and the things that could change and by looking at this big book. Um, The program, I believe we change our lives by working the steps. And I think sometimes it can get a little overcomplicated in trying to work the steps. In the big book, there's a great story um, about It's called He Sold Himself Short, and this is how he worked the steps. And this is the story in the big book. He says, on Wednesday afternoon, it was Dr. Bob's afternoon off, he had me come down to the office, and we spent three or four hours, three or four hours, formally going through the six-step program. Okay, so it used to be a six-step program. And I think now that I can get into a six-month inventory, or I can do this, and I have to figure out that, this program was really designed, I believe, pretty simple. You know, Dr. Bob basically told him, these are your problems, and then he told him, these are my problems, then four hours later, you just get on and start living your life. And actually, if I did that and read page 86 every night, I'd probably be fine. Um, And what I want to just kind of finish with is it's hard to come back when we're not abstinent. I think it's really hard. And I absolutely commend everybody that shows up. And I'm so grateful that I showed up because by showing up, my life changed. And I think I found from all that falling apart, not only has my life changed to be abstinent, I met someone in this program that I fell in love with and I'm married now. Um, and that person helps me a lot because being in a relationship is a challenge, a real challenge for me. And there's something that that person told me once when she was having a hard time. And I wanted to finish with this because if I can live this way, I think it makes my life so much better. It said, when you're the least lovable, like when you're really feeling bad, that is when I need to give her a little more love because she needs a little more love. It's not a moment where I want to judge her because she's being whatever. And it's in those moments, I think when we really feel bad that we need more love. And I think that's a big part of what this program needs to be is recognizing relapse and recovery and just loving every person. I mean, we're all absolutely incredible for just being here. You know, there's no good or bad. There's just sick. And, this programme I am so grateful for because it has saved my life. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Brian. Our third speaker will be Lauren. Let's welcome her. And also remember to keep passing the ask it basket around back and forth in case people think of questions later. Thanks.
3: Hi, everybody. I'm Lauren, compulsive eater, in the process of uncovering, I call it. And um, I'm the odd duck that uh, came into program and then left program and stayed out for 20 years before I came back in. And uh, my core issue, I suppose, is in not being able to be honest has always been shame. I was ashamed of who I was, and um, I didn't change when I came into program. I was ashamed of how I did program, and um, I wanted to think the way I was brought up. That seemed to be easier, which was like as a fundamentalist. There's basically one right way to do things, and I kind of kept looking for the successful people and then decided, well, they had the right way, and uh, that's what I would preach to everybody else, and preach is a pretty um, accurate verb. Um, Grew up with preachers and kept preaching, and um, there's something I wanted to read out of Appendix A in our Overeaters Anonymous second edition because it says that one of the prejudices about compulsive overeating is society's view of a compulsive overeater as someone who is obese. Yet the overeater can be one pound overweight or even underweight, as in anorexia, and still be a compulsive overeater. The illness has nothing to do with weight. And I wanted to read that because... As a person who came in, oh, in, the, in 1984, about 30 pounds overweight, the fact was is that I had gained and lost that 30 pounds eight or nine times in my life since my first diet at 14. And um, when, I was, um, when I was eating, um, I was like um, a stuffed, starved waif. And when I was restricting, I was a floating, starved waif. And at different times in my life, I needed the float, because when I was floating, I felt brave. Um, and I'll go into that later. Um, in 1984, I was having relationship problems again. Um And researching how my partner could go to AA, I found, OA, and was astonished to find that there were other people who ate like I did and binged in secret on everything they could get their hands on. And since I was in New York City, there were a lot of other people in the public eye, like I was, who um, had this facade of put a smile on and um, you know look like what we used to call in high school hair and outfit. You didn't say hi to somebody when you passed him in the hall. you just went hair and outfit. And that was kind of the, our, our hip way of saying, you know, I like your hair, I like your outfit. And if, if you looked okay, you were okay. and that's what I learned in my family of origin. Do not talk about your feelings. And for God's sake, don't show them. Don't cry in front of people and don't cry in front of me. You know, just dress right. And if your knees don't look right, cover them. Don't, you know, don't, you know, just get the right outfit on and stand in front of people. When you meet them, look them in the eye and say, How do you do, Mr. So and so? And that was politics. You know, that was a way to do it, that was a way to look good. And so, um, and forgive me when I lose my train of thought, but I am, you know, 62 years old, and I happen to do that. Um, Anyway, so I was saying, um, I was losing and gaining weight and not letting people know because I was in the public eye, and I saw other people like that in New York City. They were comedians and, you know, uh, sort of opera singers, and uh, they were politicians, and they all showed up at meetings, and, they could all find a way to look good, uh, put on their tie or their heels or whatever. And they came, we came to, you know, um, things like this. We called it the roundup, you know, like they did in AA's, and there would just be, you know, hundreds of people there, and we all looked good. And many of us were in relapse. And uh, there is something horrific about not just what I would use to blame you know, like in my family of origin, call people hypocrites, but there's something horrible about covering, feeling so incredibly awful on the inside, so desperate, so hurt, so lonely, so starved, um, and, and have to look so good on the outside, and actually have to be able to perform, not just talk, but do your thing, you know, in front of people, and um th- that was me, and it, I I always felt like it was some kind of double whammy. It took extra strength and I was always using up my muscles and my emotional well, you know, by feeling awful and trying to act good. I was as shy on the inside as anybody here. Um, I was I had the le- as little self-respect as anybody here, but I had to act. Confident, and this spread to um, coming in to the program. So as I said, I did that in '84. I found a sponsor right away, and I um, started doing the steps with her. And I got through them, and I I found a meal plan, and I think I was what I called at the time abstinent for about three months, and that was the first three months of since I was fourteen. You know where I. Where I wasn't binging, but then I started to slip and slide, and I was so so ashamed of it. I mean, I was doing what I knew how to do, and I was going to a lot of meetings, and uh, I I did stay in the program for a while until my sponsor left me uh, let me down. She moved, um, and I had you know a history of putting my gurus up on a pedestal, and when they did something like you know, had an affair with somebody that wasn't, you know, their person, or they, they, I don't know, you know, there's a million ways for you to be a bad person. And she let me down, and I was disappointed by my next sponsor, and I just felt like, you know... OA wasn't for me, especially, you know, since, you know, I had to change jobs. I didn't feel supported by my higher power. I didn't feel, I wasn't going to meetings. I didn't feel supported by people. I, um, I, I still talked to the program, and I figured so long as I was talking to people that I knew who had become my friends from the program, that I was doing the program. This is a thing that I really found out, talking, the talk... And not walking the walk is another one of those double whammies. It's another pretend situation. And I really had thought I had enough OA in the bank to kind of weather the new job and weather it when I got cancer. You know, life is life, right? Um, Life... um, There's a saying that, um, especially for us perfectionists, uh, and I am certainly one, I had an idea about what was perfect, and I thought that life was perfect, and you were doing it right when good things happened, when I found the parking place, and when I got the job that I wanted to, and got into the relationship I wanted to. But the truth is, somebody told me that life perfectly uh, brings up your unhealed issues perfectly brings them up over and over again, whether it's in another person or in uh, life things, you know. And um, I did not know that at the time, so I thought God was against me, and um, I was into the blaming game. And we've heard today about uh, blaming. I thought it was so well put, far better than I could about. Forgive me for the crosstalk. talk. Um, how if we do something, we'll find out that it comes and bites us in the butt, you know, uh, later, and we, we will have to go through it. And that, and blaming and judging was my the voice of my critical mind, and that's what I did with other people, and I would then have to go through that difficult time. So let me just make it short to say that I left the program, and I didn't have enough. OA in the bank, and I started um, eating sugar again. Sugar is my trigger food, there is no doubt about it. There is no if, ands, or buts. Now, there just so happens to be sugar in wine. I don't know if any of you know that. But since I wasn't an alcoholic, although when I first got abstinent, I decided that I would include all alcohol in my meal plan. But then when I was only on a diet, because, you see, for me, once I left what the program is, which is the daily structure of sponsor, sponsees, service, prayer, meditation, working the steps, and so on, all I was left with was the dribble, which was... A diet, and diets, like rules, are made to be broken. I 'd been on hundreds of them, and so when I went off the diet, um, i I just took um, alcohol back and I thought I really needed relief from myself. It was so hard to live with myself, and i I, I was so self conscious, particularly in social situations, and I constantly needed to be in these social situations as part of my livelihood, uh, it really helped to lubricate the way to have a glass of wine. I could just be funnier. I could just laugh. I could just kind of have fun. People thought I was actually a fun person when I was drinking. And I, that's what I've always wanted. I want to be humorous. I want to be warm. I want to be all those things I feel in my heart, but that people just don't seem, at least from what they tell me to feel, particularly when they first meet me, And uh, a wine helped that. So um, I started drinking, and um, I I did a lot of good things in 20 years. I I made some geographics. I got into new relationships. And whenever I got into a new relationship, I had to lose 30 pounds uh, because that's just the way it was. If you're in love, if I'm in love, I don't feel the, the, the compunction to eat so much. So basically... I would uh, survive on um, wine and lettuce, and um, th- until I lost the thirty pounds, and um, then I would stay there for about you know the proverbial minute, and uh, reward myself and go back up. I had the three sizes of clothing in the closet, and I spent a lot of money buying um, new clothes uh, that would fit me, you know, at the weight that I was. I tried to think as I was thinking about sharing this, you know, what would, what I would think when I, when I left the program and also when I would pick up food after one of these many diets and, um, oh, screw it was the main thing. I mean, um, Bill, W in the, in the big book says, uh, you know, we really, <laughs> you ask a, an alcoholic or compulsive eater, you know, what they're thinking when they pick up that thing and, Nothing. We're not really thinking, you know, we're just drawn to it. And um but I think oh screw it was one thing. Uh when I was blaming people and places and things. Um when I was um when I when a life thing would come up and I would say I deserve to have such and so I have breast cancer, I have lymphoma, you know, I have this, I have that, I have treatment. Um uh, I wasn't bingeing all the time, so I thought I was mostly under control. Uh, until I, I wasn't. Um, so I blamed my family of origin way into my forties for my problems, and um, so that's what I was thinking. And then um, I want to talk about what happened. Uh, exactly six years ago, I had been—I was here in the Bay Area. I had moved here from New York City, and um, I had met someone who was in Oahu, and uh, she had this really good program and would talk her good program. And I saw how active she was and physical. And how much he had lost weight, and so I did what I've done since I was a child. I copied her. I thought, if I'll just, I'll just eat what she's eating, and uh, maybe I'll become a way how, you know. I mean, maybe somehow, and I'll talk to her a little bit, and maybe I can get out of this terrible downward spiral because you know, you get older. I was getting older, and I was having lots of physical problems, as I have mentioned, you know, I'd, I've, you know, gone through chemotherapy. I've gone through radiation. My immune system was not what it was. Compulsive eating on the top of that, um, especially when you eat to underweight and then eat to overweight and um, the emotional strain uh, on other people in my life, my family, my family of origin, my chosen family, my relationships was so obvious. You know, when I get older, I began to see how many people drew away from me and what they said you know, about why they had done it. I began to see some of the drama that was around me. Couldn't always be other people who was doing this. So I tried to be like this woman in How and I adopted her diet. And from Monday through Friday pretty much I could I could do her diet. And then the weekends were like they used to be. I'd be back to the grocery store, coming home with a couple of bags and I'd say, But it's only on the weekends and I desperately wanted to stop doing that and I thought, Well, I'll just um you know, I'll just have wine for dinner and cut out the food. And, or when I go out, you know, I sort of reverted to, um, I have to say that a lot of me has stayed um, emotionally from about the age of 10 to 16. They're, they're, as compulsive eaters, they say that we are, we don't mature emotionally uh, like other people who face life without just pushing it down with food, and I did find more and more that I had um, a lot of confusion and a lot of the insanity of going to the same sort of uh, tricks that I had when I was from 10 to 16 um, using food, and one of them was that I would only eat when someone took me out to eat. And then it became, and I won't eat when they take me out, I'll only drink, because I'll be saving calories. And it became clear to me that drinking was a gateway food, in that I could be abstinent for a week and have one glass of wine on a Friday night, and I inevitably, either immediately after, a day or two, or five days later, I would start binging. And I tried this about seven, eight, nine, ten, I don't know how many times, you know. And I started going to, I'm from the uh, East Bay around San Francisco, and I started going to meetings, and the the gift of desperation for me was that no matter how shameful I felt it was, I was going to say how what, what I was doing, actually, specifically, like I just told you what I was doing. And I had never done this in my life because it was too shameful, you know, I couldn't I could, I couldn't tell people. I couldn't be honest about it. So, um, I kept saying it, and some people just looked at me sort of askance because it was an OA meeting, and I was talking about wine as well as food. Um, some people just furrowed their brow. Some people actually talked to me, but nobody said, "Hey, you know, I'll, you know, I have a solution for you." But I kept talking about it. And one day when I was out of state and I was at a very tiny meeting, um, somebody came up who was visiting and she said, there's a solution. And are you ready to stop eating this way? And would you be willing to go and get a big book out of the library even? And I will help you. You can call me every day at 7 o'clock. And the gift of desperation for me was... Yes, yes, and yes. And whatever you tell me to do, I am willing to do. I'm a born resistor, and I could feel resistance coming up, but I had no doubt in my mind that the way she had to lead me through the steps or what time she told me to call or whatever it was, I was going to just do it. And she was only with me, just like my first sponsor, she moved away. But I was determined that um, I would, even if all I was doing was copying her, it was okay. I think it's okay to just copy somebody that has recovery until it becomes a practice for ourselves, and we find our own our own recovery. It's like as a writer, you know, before you find your own voice, it's okay if you want to copy Virginia Woolf for a minute, you know, or somebody else, and then. Keep looking for your own voice, and it became a practice to call at seven o'clock every morning. At thirty days, she said, "You got to find some sponsees." Oh, I don't know. You know what? What am I going to have to say? She said, "If you have two hours and they have no- nothing, that's what you have to offer." So you have thirty days, and I started to sponsor in my very, you know, limited way. And she had come up through the old style program before we had our own program literature and so I read the the old books, the AA twelve and twelve and the big book and I had never done that before. In my first recovery I had I I was like, what? I'm not a Bible beater. I'm not gonna raid that stuff, you know, that old fashioned stuff. We're new fashion, you know, we're eighties, man. You can see where that got me. And so um, I read it, and I answered questions, and I wrote them down every day. And I've continued that as a practice. And she taught me that the 10th step is doing steps 1 through 9 every day. And she taught me how to do that. Really simple. It doesn't take long. It includes turning it over, you know, if you need to do that. Um, So I, I just... I wanted to share with you that um, even a person who leaves program, it isn't the best choice. I so prefer what I hear people you know coming in and and staying and keeping their butt in a seat so that they have the chance of of that group of people or that one person coming up to them. Um, I didn't. Um, I think you could call it um, self-righteousness. Uh, I think you could call it lack of humility. I didn't learn what the difference between humility and humiliation until I had been in. And by the way, my anniversary is July 11th, and it will be six years. And that, thank you. That for me is 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 huge uh, to be able to maintain weight that long because I was the opposite, you know, of the maintainer, just the up and down. Um. Uh, in Appendix C of the A of our Overeaters Anonymous Second Edition, there is a person who is um, in the clergy, I think, but that um, our our world service deemed um, okay, you know, to put in our second edition, and he says that um, how he's talking about how spiritual values. Are important, and I consider the principles of the program to be spiritual values. And it described those at the in the end of our um, overeaters book by step by step what those values are. And he says um, a person who who adopts these spiritual values, and he doesn't say perfect, he just says does something with them, adopts them, takes his or her place within the community with ease and grace. Motivated by a deep and abiding sense of thanksgiving, which I call gratitude. And I get to practice my five gratitudes every morning, which is to see some of the good instead of only the negative in how I work the program, how others work the program, and in the world, and in my community. Um, Such individuals, thank you, I'm just going to finish this, become creative and constructive not only with the family circle or community, but in the arts and sciences. Their creative energies are not blocked by shame, guilt, self-pity, and hate, nor by the facades of arrogance, aggressiveness, and uncaring attitudes. And that's what I found from OA. Thank you.
0: I think we can applaud one more time for three great speakers. Thank you so much. Does somebody have the ask it basket? Ah, could you bring it up? We have about another 20 minutes um, to answer questions. This one is specifically for Brian. Can you make one suggestion or one? I can't read this word. Or one indiscretion of the beginning of a relapse? Indication. Indication. Sorry, I couldn't read it.
2: Oh, wow, that's a tough one. I mean, actually. There's, to me, it's, I start fighting something, whether it be a food or a behavior. You know, I should be here, but I don't want to be here. This food's becoming too challenging for me, but I know I can control it. And I've always viewed it as, it's like trying to negotiate with a terrorist. There's really not much of a solution. And the answer is, I need to just give it up. And I don't know. I'm probably not explaining that right. Well, there's no right or wrong. But usually when I start fighting something, there's something there. And I think the key is in my writing at night, if I read page 86 and those four things, it will tell me what it is. In In the big book, sorry.
0: Do you guys think you have to get up, or do you think you can hear them if they sit and do that? Oh, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Um, This one says, I've been in and out of relapse for six months. How did your recovery go in more momentum than the disease? Oh, gain. Your recovery gained more momentum than the disease. Anybody want to take that? Guys, can just take turns, or you can both speak about the same thing. Sorry, your
1: handwriting. My recovery gained more momentum than my disease by showing up for more meetings and working my program more and more. And my um, sponsor asked me to do more things and. Um, I actually ended up switching back to my original sponsor because that's what I needed, and so it was following her suggestions, it was following the suggestions of others, and eventually that recovery gained more than what that disease had um, relapse had done.
0: What do you think of OA-90, how, FA, et cetera? Anybody want to take that one? Well, OA-90 and and how are part of OA, so we can skip FA, but they could speak to OA-90 and how. I'm making that executive decision. But I don't think anybody wants to speak to that one. Okay? Was it helpful for you to examine why you relapsed, or was it more helpful just to move on?
3: I find it helpful to think about how I relapsed because I was asked to. And um, if I can help anybody by sharing any thought that I have about my experience... um, then I find that it works to share. It's a service.
0: Would each of you talk about your food plan? Do you eat the same thing each day for breakfast or lunch? Do you weigh and measure your food? Do you count calories? How do you handle planned dinners at home? How do you handle dinners out? question
2: I count calories in a very inexact way and I lie to make it fit sometimes Um, I eat a lot of the same things for like breakfast but I, I think that for me what my food plan turned into was just a long process of finding out what didn't work and being honest and then making those changes. And I think it's different for everybody. And on the other OA how question, I thought since it didn't get answered, uh, for me being slightly codependent, I thought I'd just try to answer a little bit. When all these other programs I've been around, you know, when they all started and whatever, uh, for a long time I just wish we could all be together is all I really wanted. But then I realized people need different things, so I've just come to a point of acceptance and I wish them all the best. And I don't know anything about the other programs because I just go to this one. But... Whatever works, I'm happy for people.
0: Okay. I've lost my abstinence for most of the past year. I've been eating my feelings and over the very painful and difficult relationship with my elderly mom. How do you get unstuck when there is no fixing a solution? Walking away is not an option.
3: Uh, I've just emerged out of a, th- of a very long, about three-year uh, difficult financial arrangement with, in a partnership where I owned a house. It was overbearing. It was difficult. It took up all my to- my airtime. Um, I called on all kinds of uh, resources that were professional. I sought help within these rooms and uh, decided that I could still put abstinence first and that my abstinence has nothing to do with the life stuff. Um, When I lost my absence, I lost my abstinence. I thought it was because of certain things, but I don't know that it really was. I thought it was because I do believe that it's possible to have the solution, be in the program, find a sponsor that works, follow what they request, and um, live a program no matter what kinds of life things that we're dealing with. I just know that's possible because I've been through it.
0: Was there a time in relapse when you didn't think you could make it back to recover? Recovery, what kept you trying?
1: Most of my relapse, I didn't think I would make it back um, because the food was doing what I needed it to do, yet yeah, it was also damaging me even more. Um, what was the second part? Please.
0: What kept you trying?
1: I don't know. The only thing I know is I kept my butt in the chair, and I don't know why I put my butt in the chair except for I can say my higher power... Did it for me because it wasn't me.
0: The last one says, Thank you all so much for your wonderful shares. Keep recovering. That's it. Thanks. Thank you so much. Part of the script okay guys <laughs> sorry <laughs> could you just hold a sec it, it is now time to close the session let's thank our speakers who have done service for the session <laughs> please stand and join hands as we close with uh, one of the closing as printed in the program on page five serenity prayer O A promise third step prayer Oh, I pick. I pick the Serenity Prayer.